Good evening. Talks between the United States and Russia are said to be substantive with more to come. Nicaragua's Daniel Ortega is inaugurated. We speak with Vietnam veteran peace activist Brian Wilson and others in Managua. A better argument over mandates at the Supreme Court. A bitter argument over mandates at the Supreme Court. And the trauma of a deadly fire in the Bronx continues. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, January 10th, 2021. The United States and Russia locked horns over Ukraine and other security issues today with no signs of progress from either side at highly anticipated strategic talks. Low expectations from both Washington and Moscow about the high stakes session in Geneva appeared to have been met as senior diplomats from the two countries merged without offering any hint of success. Neither side characterized the meeting as a complete failure, but neither did they offer any perspective of easing the increasingly worrisome standoff over Russia's military buildup on its border with Ukraine that the West sees as a fundamental threat to European security and Russia sees as a fundamental threat to Russian security. Moscow insists on guarantees to halt NATO's eastward expansion and even roll back the military alliance's deployments in Eastern Europe, while Washington firmly rejects the demands as a non-starter. State Department spokesperson Ned Price. Substantive discussions that lasted nearly eight hours, the United States came with several ideas of reciprocal actions that the U.S. and Russia can take that would be in our security interest and would improve strategic stability. These preliminary ideas, as you've heard from the deputy, included, included missile placement and the future of certain missile systems in Europe along the lines of the now defunct <coughs> INF treaty between the U.S. and Russia. We also shared that we are open to discussing ways we can set reciprocal limits on the size and scope of military exercises and to improving transparency around those exercises, again, on, an, on a reciprocal basis. We were firm, however, in pushing back on security proposals we've heard from Moscow that are simply non-starters for the United States. We will not, for example, allow anyone to slam close NATO's open-door policy which has always been central to the NATO alliance. We also will not forego bilateral cooperation with sovereign states that wish to work with the United States. And we will not make decisions about Ukraine without Ukraine, about Europe without Europe, or about NATO without NATO. As we say to our allies and partners, nothing about you without you. The United States is committed to meaningful, reciprocal dialogue with Russia just as we are committed to consulting and coordinating closely uh, with our allies and partners. We are ready to continue discussions on the bilateral issues we identified today as soon as is practical, and we made that clear in the discussions today. To that end, tomorrow, uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman will travel to Brussels to brief the North Atlantic Council and the EU Political and Security Committee, as well as to meet with the EU EEA, uh, EEAS Secretary General Sinino all ahead of the NATO-Russia Council meeting plan for Wednesday morning. We have been and will continue to be moving in lockstep with our allies and partners at every level. And that is Ned Price, the State Department spokesperson. Russian President Vladimir Putin has described NATO expansion to Ukraine and other former Soviet states as a red line for Moscow, demanding binding guarantees from the West that they wouldn't become members of the alliance. According to the Russian news agency Medusa, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rybakov said the negotiations were complex, deep and concrete. NATO should abandon the development of the territories of the states that joined the alliance after 1997 
27. Russia does not and cannot have any intentions of attacking Ukraine. We need reinforced concrete guarantees that Ukraine and Georgia will never join NATO. We urge the United States to be as responsible as possible. There's no need to intimidate Russia. This won't produce results. The situation isn't homeless, he continued. Hopeless, he continued. We will conduct talks with NATO and the OSCE in Brussels, after which concrete decisions can be made. We'll be following this story during this week here on WBAI. Meanwhile, in Managua, the capital of the Central American nation of Nicaragua, the United States today imposed a new round of sanctions on Nicaraguan officials, including the defense minister, on this day, the day that President Daniel Ortega was being sworn into office as president. Today's action, the latest sanctions targeting Nicaragua that the U.S. has coordinated with allies, aims to increase pressure on Ortega and his wife, Vice President Rosario Murillo. The U.S. Department of State also said it is taking steps to impose visa restrictions on 116 people accused of undermining democracy in Nicaragua, barring some mayors, prosecutors and police, prison and military officials, among others, from entering the United States. But United States American Vietnam veteran and peace activist Brian Wilson who's lived in Nicaragua for the past five years, spoke with WBAI from the Nicaraguan capital, where he's attending Ortega's inauguration. Wilson says the Ortega administration has done a lot since its election, re-election, and it is uh, bringing to the Nicaraguan people what those people, the majority of Nicaragua's people, 70 percent is who voted for Ortega in the last election, 70 percent, that and a very high turnout at that, whether um, – he says that uh, the Nicaraguan uh, people um, have chosen the president they want. Very excited about the inauguration, and despite everything the U.S. is trying to do, and Nicaragua is going to thrive. His spirit is very high, and now they're much more connected with China and Russia uh, and Iran, and so the people here are, are excited, as I am, to be ushering in another administration of Danielle and Rosario with the Sandinista program of producing so much social programs for virtually all Nicaraguans that's never before been experienced. It's quite a time in terms of education, health care, roads, renewable energy, gender equity. The spirit is good, and I'm glad to be part of it. You're a Vietnam veteran till today. We've seen a number of presidents come and go. What's up with the United States from the point of view of a veteran? Well, I think they're psychotic. I said that when I was in Vietnam. I said, this is a, I'm in the midst of psychosis and I can't get out of it. And I've been studying U.S. history ever since. And um, the exceptionalism that we're conditioned with makes it very difficult to see reality for what it is. It's like we grew up in fantasy. We grew up in an illusion. The people in Washington are still part of the Cold War illusion, or delusion, I should say. That's no different from any other president. Biden and Mickey are, are typical U.S. white men presidents. I can't understand how they could be so blind to the reality of what people really want in the world. We know that they're supporting the investor class. We just have to live with it, and Nicaragua is... Um, a shining light of example. The U.S. would benefit by uh, learning from Nicaragua. You know, we all grew up with the band. Uh, I was born on Memorial Day. My mother said I was a little baby in her arms in the parade of soldiers hobbling down the road in front of the hospital. Is that what you mean by the fantasy world that we live in? 
Yeah, I was born on July 4th. <laughs> and um, I was probably six or seven before I realized that people weren't celebrating my birthday. I mean, you know, it was a gala day of excitement. Growing up post-World War II, we lived in the euphoria of thinking we had defeated the Nazis, which really the Russians, the Soviets did. And we had the golden era of capitalism, 1945 to 1975 about. And, of course, we were indoctrinated in the Cold War, incredible propaganda. Being conditioned in a rural community as Iowa, upstate New York, the United States was the greatest. And we had J. Edgar Hoover. We had Joe McCarthy to protect us in a small town. I didn't know any poets or philosophers or intellectuals. And it was just all wonderful to be a U.S. American. And that exceptionalism is almost what I would call a severe disability because it really interferes with the ability to critically think and examine things. Anything you would like to add? I would just like to say to the people that might be listening to your radio station that the United States desperately needs a revolution and uh, not likely to happen. But the reason that I came to Nicaragua originally was to study revolutionary processes. That was in 1986. I thought for sure before I died, I would see some kind of a revolution in the United States. But now I'm 81, so I'm not likely to... Uh, witness it but i would sure hope for some kind of an awakening to realize that the united states really is a failed failed state and that is brian wilson reporting for wbai from managua nicaragua earlier today where he is awaiting the inauguration of their new president daniel ortega returning as president of Nicaragua on September, uh, pardon me, on September 1st, 1987, while engaged in a protest against the shipping of United States weapons to Central America in the context of the Contra Wars, Wilson and other members of a Veterans Peace Action Team blocked railroad tracks at the Concord, California Naval Weapons Station. An approaching train didn't stop and struck the veterans. Wilson was hit, ultimately losing both legs below the knee while suffering a severe skull fracture with loss of his right frontal lobe. Subsequently, he discovered that he had been identified for more than a year as an FBI domestic terrorist suspect under President Reagan's anti-terrorist task force provisions and that the train crew that day had been advised not to stop the train. Three days after Wilson lost his legs, over 10,000 people gathered for a nonviolent gathering in support of Wilson and against armed shipments to Central America. Jesse Jackson, Rosario Murillo, who is the wife of President Daniel Ortega and now the vice president of Nicaragua, along with Wilson's wife of 10 days and stepson, all spoke. Joan Baez sang, played music during the gathering. At the same time, a group of mass males, one wearing a Sons of Italy T-shirt, took it upon themselves to tear up the wooden train tracks where Wilson was run over. Some protesters sat on the tracks trying to prevent them from engaging in direct action at an otherwise symbolic protest. Another and uh, author, activist Dan Kovalik, is also in Managua to attend Ortega's inauguration. Kovalik says the source of Managua's problems stem from Washington. So I am here for the inauguration of Danielle Ortega, who was reelected president in November uh, by a wide margin. Sixty five percent of the electorate voted and of those who voted, 75 percent voted uh, for Danielle. And uh, I am here as a long term friend of Nicaragua, of the Sandinista Revolution, to support this country that is under 
uh, draconian sanctions by the U.S. And in fact, the U.S. just announced new sanctions this morning on the day of the inauguration. Um, and I'm here to support um, uh, Nicaragua and the Sandinista Revolution, which continues to this day. I, a lot of people may not realize that. What does the streets of Managua look like today? I mean, to be totally honest, it's very, very quiet. There's very little traffic. There's very little foot traffic, very little car traffic. It's a very quiet day, uh, though they expect, you know, a lot of people to come to the plaza to celebrate inauguration. But in the meantime, uh, honestly, it's very, very quiet. Uh, It was easy to get here, very quick to get here uh, to the foreign ministry. We're waiting to uh, accompany President Danielle to the inauguration. And again, it could not be more tranquil, really. Now, I've been coming here since 1987. And when I first came here, you know, it was, it, the Contra War was, at that point, nearly seven years old, of course. And it was a very difficult time. You saw kids without shoes, you know, literally wearing wax. I and mean, the poverty was intense. It was a very difficult period. And things didn't get much better after 1990 when the neoliberals were elected. You know, uh, they did not bother to electrify the country. They didn't bother to build infrastructure. You know, once Ortega was reelected in 2006, they immediately started building roads. They immediately electrified the country. Nicaragua is now almost 100% food sovereign, meaning they grow almost all the food that they eat. And they export some, too, including giving aid to countries like Cuba and Venezuela. And so my experience here is a country that is trying to develop. It is trying to become an independent and sovereign country. And the U.S. resents it, you know, and and that's why I'm here is to support that process that, that this revolution continues. And that is Dan Kovalik, an American human rights, labor rights lawyer and peace activist, contributor articles to Counterpunch Huffington Poach. Post and tell sir, tell us, sir, he teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The United States Supreme Court heard all arguments Friday in the OSHA case. Of course, one never knows how the court will rule. But if the justices questions are any indication, there could be a 6-3 split in favor of a stay against the rules which require under OSHA uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration guidelines that, uh, as ordered by President Biden, that uh, all workers be required to private businesses over a certain size to wear masks and get vaccinations. Can they be mandated? Um, uh Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett uh, might be voting in favor, according to uh, people who follow the court closely with uh, Justice Breyer, Kagan and Sotomayor dissenting. That's the expected vote. All parties made very short opening remarks and then invited the justices questions. A common theme on which justice after justice questioned the parties was not whether vaccinations are helpful in the fight against COVID-19 or whether mandates are lawful generally, but who gets aside these public health questions in relatively heated discussion, Justice Breyer expressed concern about the growing number of daily cases, noting that uh, on Thursday, the nation had around 750,000 new cases. He was answered by National Federation of Independent Business Lawyers, Scott Keller, who says that it shouldn't be up to the president acting as the arbiter. 
We are asking for a stay before enforcement takes effect Monday. And the reason for that is this is an unprecedented agency action. Yeah, I know you have all good arguments that it isn't good. They have arguments that it is good. Okay, I'm asking you a different question. And the question is, how can it conceivably be in the public interest with three quarters of a million people yesterday, goodness knows how many today? I don't want to repeat myself. But you have the hospitalization figures growing by factors of, of 10, 10 times what it was. Uh, you have hospitalization at the record, near the record. You have, you have, I mean, you understand the thing as well as I, I and so I repeat my question. To me, it's unbelievable, but I want to hear what you say. How can it be in the public interest, which is a requirement? How can it be a balance of harms in this case? Assuming the arguments aren't off the wall on the government side, and I'm believe me, they're not. Okay, that's what I want to hear the answer to. Justice Breyer, states can act, private businesses have acted on historic levels. This is going to cause a massive economic shift in the country. Billions upon billions of non-recoverable costs. Testing also is not frequently available. This is in our appendix at page 374. Among those employers who have attempted to do so, only 28% are able to find adequate providers to ensure that weekly testing is available for the employees. If Congress intended to give an occupational health agency the power to mandate vaccines across the country and needed to do so clearly. States can do it. Businesses have done it and are able to do it. The question is not what is this country going to do about COVID? It's who gets to decide that. And that was uh, Justice Breyer and National Federation of Independent Business Lawyers Scott Keller earlier today. The first compliance deadline under the mandate by OSHA is set for uh, today. And with tests in very short supply and a stay is considered a strong possibility. And here in New York, I'm sorry, give me one moment. Um, hang on. Here in New York, there was another news conference concerning the uh, terrible, tragic fire that struck the Bronx on Sunday. And uh, there were some revision of the number of people who've died. Uh, the uh, uh, commissioner of the New York City Fire Department, uh, Commissioner Nigro, uh, had this to say on the new casualty numbers. A bit of a double count, and uh, I guess it's a bit of good news that the number isn't 19, but 17. But don't forget, there are many people fighting for their lives in the hospital who were transported, so this number could unfortunately uh, increase again. So our prayers are with them, and the prayers continue to be with the families of those we lost. And uh, at least two doors in the high-rise building in the Bronx that suffered the catastrophic fire were malfunctioning and didn't automatically close as they were supposed to. The fire was sparked by an electric space heater, an apartment on the second floor, can, uh, creating an enormous volume of, spoke, of smoke. Um, uh, fire Commissioner Nigro said the initial miscount was due to the victims being taken to several different hospitals. Smoke from the fire spread after the entry door to the apartment where the blaze began didn't shut properly. Uh, and Mayor Adams said the city would double down on an educational campaign to teach teachers and residents to keep doors closed in the event of a fire. 
He then spoke of the mayor spoke of uh, not being hard on the family that or the fire originated who uh, escaped their building and left the fire door open. He said it wasn't the result of this poor family leaving the door open, but the malfunction of the door that should have closed. And he said that uh, folks should just go easy on these people. Go ahead. I want to go back to the resident in the open apartment and we want to be clear here that we don't want to add further trauma on that family because they fled the apartment. Muscle memory during the crisis, you're trying to get out. It is our obligation to reinforce the concept of close the door, close the door. But what we don't want to do is just to add more trauma on a family that was simply trying to escape a very dangerous and a very frightening experience. Uh, all of us make mistakes during crises. And so, yes, we want to encourage, we're going to double down on closing the door and that message. And it's our obligation to do so. But our hearts go out to this family. And I just want to be clear on that. They're going through trauma uh, as, as well. There was no outstanding violations of our knowledge of a heat complaint in the building. But again, this investigation is really new, and the fire marshal and other city entities are looking at all of this information. And the investigation will be completed when the fire marshal do their thorough look. We have a professional fire marshal entity in this city, and one thing we never want to do is to try to make an investigation be expeditious but not thorough. They're going to be thorough. They do their job well, and they will give the outcome, and they know when it will be completed. Mayor Eric Adams. Kelly McGee, a spokesperson for the property owners of the building, says that all the building's doors have self-closing mechanisms as required by city law. She said that in July 2021, building maintenance staff repaired a lock on the door to the unit where the fire began and found no issues with the door's self-closing mechanism. The Office of Emergency Management is trying to find temporary housing for more than 60 building residents displaced by the fire in hotels around the block, said Christine Farrell, the office's first deputy commissioner. Last night, the building was totally vacated. No apartments were habited last night. We, through the American Red Cross, uh, with Housing Preservation and Development, and with the building management, about uh, half of those units, so about 60 different families, stayed in area hotels. We were able to house everyone in the Bronx. Um, and the rest, um, as they said, there are people still in hospitals, and people also went to friends and family. Ongoing is registration with the Red Cross. People are still people are coming out of hospitals. People were at work or somewhere else. So um, it's never too late. People can continue to register with the Red Cross. We worked with the Department of Education. They were able to help to get the children back, as was noted, back to their schools this morning. And they will continue to help them until people are back in the building. It does look like many of the apartments will be able to be reoccupied as the week goes on, which is good news. There are a certain number of apartments that will be not habitable for quite some time. And so we will continue to work to find long-term housing with the state and with the city. And that was the Office of Emergency Management Deputy Commissioner. And then uh, David Banks, who's the Chancellor of New York City Department of Education, uh, had this to say about uh, reaching out to the schools, the students, the teachers and uh, administrators at the uh, the various elementary schools and others that the students, uh, the young people who died and their families that were impacted by those deaths uh, went and to talk to those folks about uh, the young people who passed. 
it was certainly uh, my pleasure to join the mayor uh, this morning as we visited four schools, um, two traditional public schools and two charter schools. And I think it's important to note that, um, that when it comes to moments like this, there's no separation between us. These are all of our children. And to hear the heartbreak from the principals of each one of those schools, the teachers, the school safety officers, the custodial workers, we came there to thank them, to let them know that we are here for them. But they, each one of them also told us about each one of the young people who, who died. They're not just a name. They told us stories about each one of them. And my heart broke as we heard just about how passionate each young person was and how they came to life for us. One teacher read a letter that he had just gotten a few days ago. And it was just it was just heartbreaking. And that is the uh, David Banks, who's the New York City Schools Chancellor. Personal point, uh, I was a New York City public school teacher at a nearby uh, uh, elementary school where the incident happened and um, had full firsthand uh, communications and involvement with some of the young people there and uh, know how uh, dedicated they are to learning and to uh, integrating themselves into American society and becoming successful here. And it's really a sad loss. And I know it'll be uh, uh, something that'll be uh, hurt hurt greatly in that community. Um, the ambassador of the nation of Gambia, like many, many students are coming from Africa and other countries, uh, new new immigrants to America from new areas uh, that the United States has not seen immigration in the past. They're coming into the South Bronx. One of those nations is the Gambia and Gambia. The ambassador to Gambia, Dora Daka Fadera, was there and had this to say. I'm here from Washington to meet, the, meet you and the local authorities to, to learn more about this tragic uh, uh, incident that took so many lives and left many more struggling for their lives. This is very unfortunate, and I think I dare say that the majority of the victims apparently have their roots from the Gambia. We are a very small country of about less than two million people, and we are all related. Everybody knows everybody. So our country is currently in a state of shock. Uh, before I came in here, I spoke to the president of the Republic of the Gambia, Mr. Adam Barrow, and he has asked me to extend uh, his condolences to the family, bereaved family members from the Gambia and from everywhere. This is a shock. Uh, our thoughts and prayers are with the family. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be here for you. And finally, Mayor Adams reminded New Yorkers and everyone, in case of fire, close the door. Some clear messages we want to send. One, for those who want to help, uh, please do not drop donations off to fire stations or EMS stations. Uh, let them do their jobs. They are real outlets. Our elected officials are here. Uh, you can just drop them off at the offices or um, other facilities that we will put in place if you want to do so. If you want to help financially, uh, we have the Mayor's Fund to Advance New York. Every dollar raised will go directly uh, to the family members that are involved. So this way we can help families in a real way. 
And if we take one message from this that Commissioner Nigro has mentioned several times, close the door, close the door. That was embedded in my head as a child watching the commercials over and over again. We're going to double down on that message. My conversation with the chancellor uh, this morning, uh, we're going to send out communications to all of our schools and state that we want our children to receive the same level of reinforcement. Muscle memory is everything. And if we can drill that in, uh, we can save lives by closing the doors, not only in the city, but across the entire uh, globe. This painful moment can turn into a purposeful moment as we send the right message of something simple as closing the door. And that is New York City's new mayor, Eric Adams. And that's some of the news for Monday, January 20, 2021. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Rashi Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.